Thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Bakari Sellers Podcast, a historic episode as it is the first episode in the Biden-Harris administration. This is a special inauguration episode because we are joined by my South Carolina brethren, Sergio Hudson, the designer for Michelle's inauguration outfit and Kamala Harris, Madam Vice President's post-inauguration outfit. Yesterday was obviously hectic and historic. Not the least of which was that yesterday represented a watershed day for women and people of color, particularly black women, as Kamala Harris was sworn in as our first woman vice president. And I'd submit she is now both the most powerful and successful woman in the history of American politics of any race. And to that point, I want to take today to not only celebrate my friend and now our vice president, Kamala Harris, but to also recognize the countless black women who have toiled in the vineyard of American politics, culminating in Vice President Harris's swearing in. Shirley Chisholm, Barbara Jordan, Stacey Abrams, Maxine Waters, Donna Brazile, Carol Mosley Braun, Shirley Franklin, and literally thousands of other black women elected officials and organizers, all normalized black women leading And they've taken all the hits that come when racism and sexism work together to undermine black women. And because of them, we're all here now where Vice President Harris is now the most powerful woman in the world. So I say thank you to all of you for yesterday. And specifically, we pay homage today to Shirley Chisholm, the former congresswoman and presidential candidate for a major party, black first in both regards, Built upon the long-standing legacy of black women organizers in this country with her historic run in 1972, and she helped to set in motion in terms of American electoral politics what we saw culminate this cycle both in Kamala Harris's historic run for president and being tapped as the vice presidential nominee. Here's a clip of Ms. Chisholm talking about her announcement to run for president in 1972. I announced at the Concord Street Baptist Church in Brooklyn, New York, I stand before you today as a candidate for the Democratic nomination for the Presidency of the United States of America. In the midst of my congressional district, which was the 12th congressional district, and I announced to the people of the community and a number of friends that were aware of my announcement and came in uh, from cities, particularly along the eastern seaboard, the church was jammed. There must have been close to 2,000 people. And the excitement that was there and and, uh, all of the enthusiasm that was there that a black woman for the first time in the United States of America had the audacity and the nerve to say she wanted to guide the ship of state. She wanted to be president. And I could, rem- I could see the picture now. It was so exciting. But also beneath that excitement, excitement of the idea that persons other than a white male could and should be president uh, was part of the entire drama. That why is it that in the United States of America only white males could be president? So therefore, here I was, a twofer. Hmm. Not only a woman, but a black person. So therefore, I was representing, in a sense, a black person, and a female person. And so my campaign in the beginning was swamped with a lot of blacks and women around me. And that's how that got off the ground. But believe you me, it was not easy. 
Now, some of you will say that we shouldn't spend so much time on symbolism and that black and brown faces in powerful places don't matter as much as what they'll ultimately do. And to a large extent, I agree. The substance of our leadership absolutely matters. But we should seek both the substantive leadership we need and the representative and symbolic leadership that looks like us, all of us. And what I'll say about symbolism is that that symbolism on Wednesday was everything to my mother, my sisters, my wife, my two daughters, my nieces, and the millions of members of the Indian and Jamaican diaspora who saw one of their own step into history. And know that that symbolism of Shirley Chisholm's run back in 1972 resonated with an eight-year-old Kamala Harris. And look at us now. So substance and symbolism matter. And luckily, we now have a vice president who can lead us on COVID and fight white supremacy and reform policing and revive our economy. But she can also sing Atomic Dog. Get leadership that can do both. So thank you to Shirley Chisholm. When people tried to bury your campaign, they didn't realize that they planted the seeds that gave us Kamala Harris and that it gave us our first black woman governor in Stacey Abrams in 2022. And hopefully one day, our first black woman president, who I'll just say for now, will probably be Kamala Harris too. And for that, Ms. Chisholm, we all owe you a deep debt of gratitude for this week's historic inauguration and the leadership to come from our Madam Vice President. And that's that on that. Now, many of you saw Vice President Harris's inauguration dress and Forever First Lady's inauguration outfit, and they were both flawless, as I think we all imagined them to be. But what you may not have realized is they were designed by the same person, my brother and fellow South Carolinian, Sergio Hudson. Sergio joins us today on a special inauguration episode of the Bakari Sellers podcast. Man, what's going on? I got the I have a special inauguration type episode today and I just wanted to have this brother on the show. What's going on, Sergio Hudson? How you feeling, man? I am wonderful. How are you? I'm doing good. Talk about I mean, at the inauguration, you saw the first thing I, I my tweet was that uh Michelle Obama looks flawless and she with some dude. She was with some dude. Uh, so the Chicago resident, as we'll call him. Talk about how it feels waking up this morning after, you know, such a big day for you and your future yesterday. Yeah, it, um, well, I guess I'll go back. To, so I was leaving D.C. yesterday because we actually dressed um, Vice President Harris for the evening event. So I was there dropping off the last piece for that. So I was leaving D.C. to come to Atlanta because I have a photo shoot here for my website. And so I was on the plane when it all started going down. And, <laughs> and when I landed in Philly, I got the text from Meredith Coop, who's um, Mrs. Obama's stylist. And she was like, she's wearing your outfit. Be ready. And I was like, OK. Then my phone went dead immediately because I didn't charge it on the plane. So, <laughs> So I went into the lounge trying to find somewhere to charge my phone and it was on the TV and it was all these people in there watching it. And she walked out like as soon as I walked in and mm. it was like audible gas in the room. Like everybody was like, oh, oh my God. And I was the same way because I almost forgot for a second that I addressed her. <laughs> <laughs> How you forget you dress Michelle Obama? I'm serious. Like when I saw her, it's like everything of who I was went out the window. I was like, wow, she looks good. 
<laughs> and then I was like, oh, that's the outfit I made her. <laughs> well, so, look, yeah. let's, let's back up a little bit because people need to know this. Talk about your career. Growing up, now you're from, where are you from? Because you say Columbia, but you're not really from Columbia. You're from the outskirts, ain't you? I'd say Columbia because people don't know where I'm from, but I'm from a little town called Ridgeway, South Carolina. Oh, you from the country. This boy, he's from the country. How did you get your, talk about your arc of your career and how you end up, because I hope the young people listening know, because I'm from Denmark. So you got somebody on here from Denmark and Ridgeway. We country boys. And I'm on CNN, and you're you're, around, you're international now. So talk about the arc of your career and how you ended up where you are. Well, I like to tell people all the time, they think because people come from a small town that they never, you know, like that is so lofty for us to leave and have, you know, success. But it never was a question whether I was going to leave there and have success just because it was how I was raised. My mom, you know, she just, when she figured out that I wanted to be a designer, I was like four or five years old. She set me on trajectory to be a designer. So I always knew I would leave and I always believed that I would have success. And I think that's the biggest, um, you can't be your surroundings because, you know, to be honest in those small towns, a lot of people just stay there and find work and, you know, live like that. So you, it's easy to get sucked into that. And I never but that environment was never fostered in my home. So that's so where I, did you start? Where did you so when you where'd you go to high school first? That's what I want to know. I went to Fairfield Central High School. Oh my <laughs> goodness gracious. Boy, you went to Fairfield. I went to Orange Road Wilkinson. So for those who don't know, Fairfield Central was once a 3A school. They had a great band and a great they used to be monsters in football. But that's that's country country. Okay, so you went when you when you finished Fairfield, talk about your fashion journey. For those who want to one day, one of my best friends, I, I'm gonna send her. Uh, I'm gonna send her this episode. She is a VP at uh, at Louis Vuitton. I, is that how they pronounce it? I, I don't really know how they pronounce it that well. I, I wear a little bit of it, but I don't know how they pronounce. It. But talk about your journey of how you ended up from Fairfield Central to designing first ladies. <laughs> so quick, I went to design school in Atlanta. Got out of design school in Atlanta, had a lot of offers to go to New York and intern, turned them down because I didn't, I always knew I didn't want to work for another designer because I felt like, um, and it was young and I probably should have went and worked for another designer, but in my young head, like if I go work for another designer, I'm never going to do it for myself. So my only option was to either go to New York or go home. So I went home and I was trying to figure it out at home and I was working from there. Um, fast forward a couple years, my first celebrity client was Lisa Wu, who was one of the original Housewives of Atlanta. Mm-hmm. And um, that's what started my journey on like dressing celebrities and actually becoming a brand. Then fast forward another couple years, I did a show called Style to Rock that Rihanna produced for Bravo. How and, did you get on that? You just tried out? The crazy thing is I always had got approached from like, Project Runway and like other fast shows and I turned them down. But at that moment, I was just like in a dark place and I was like, okay, where do I go now? And I guess you could say I was a little bit vulnerable <laughs> and I wasn't so on a high horse and I needed, you know, opportunity. So I did it. Um, went out for casting, didn't get picked, got sent home. Mm. Um, so I was upset. I drove to Atlanta to meet with my best friend. While I was sitting in a restaurant with him and his sister, got a call from the show. They called me back as an alternate because they didn't like who they had. I came back in, won the show, 
and then went back home to South Carolina again. <laughs> so you won the show and then went back to Yeah. It's a Ridgeway. whole it's a whole nother story, but um fast forward another couple of years, I was working with this PR firm in LA from South Carolina. I was dressing celebrities while I was still living in South Carolina. And we dressed Kendall Jenner for her 20th birthday party. What you put her in? It was like this really risque um black jumpsuit. So you and didn't use no fabric, huh? Yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs> but she's a small girl, so it didn't look vulgar, you know. <laughs> And so that was like the light of the match. And three months later, I moved to L.A. Mm. And it's kind of been on a slow rise to where I am now. So I've been in L.A. since 2016. Who have you? uh, Talk about who you've dressed. Oh, um, well, of course, it's Kendall Jenner. um, Beyonce. I've dressed her a couple of times. What did you dress Beyonce for? Um, or just going? Did she? You just dressed her when she was going to Applebee's or something? Well, we've done that as well. <laughs> <laughs> she actually, they purchased my entire one of my entire collections for her, and she just wears it like hoes, like <laughs> you know, <laughs> like running to Target. Hey, get yeah. give me give me that Sergio Hudson. I'm gonna run to Target real quick. Pretty much. That's to be honest. That's what it is. And um, so but the last time we dressed her was for Kobe Bryant's memorial oh wow yeah oh wow okay all right let's ask this let's ask some people want to know so how did you come up with the first lady's look okay so the look that we put and by the way but before we start i called it cranberry what color is it um that's closer than plum that the fashion magazines are calling (laughs) oh they corrected me you know somebody had the audacity because i called it cranberry somebody had the audacity to be like that's not cranberry. That is plum. And I didn't know what I was talking about. So I just No, it's like I would call it a Merlot or like an Oxblood or like, for lack of a better term, Burgundy. <laughs> <laughs> That's that Ridgeway coming out. I love it. Just call it Burgundy. Okay. Yeah. So how'd you come up with that look? Well, it actually was inspired by a look from my Fall 20 collection. It was a dress and a coat. And her stylist, Meredith, liked the outfit. And she was like, can we make it a little more for Mrs. Obama? And we did the pants instead of a dress. And we did the top, just the dress as a sweater instead of a dress. And it's pretty much the exact same look. And we dropped the coat to the floor just for a little bit more drama. And that's how we got where we got. <laughs> and how did you come up with uh, the MVP's look, the Madam Vice President's look? Oh, now that's a more complex story. (laughs) Um, So what happened with that was we actually made a couple of suits for her for the campaign trail. And um, we were connected with her team in that way. So when it was when they won and it was, you know, known that they would have an inauguration, they gave us the opportunity to submit and they chose us to submit for the ball that got canceled. So the outfit that she wore was actually for the inaugural ball that didn't happen. It was oh, my goodness. So you were going to dress her for the inaugural ball. Yeah. And the dress was supposed to be to the floor. And the coat was actually a different coat. It was like an opera coat that was a little bit more dramatic. But when, they, when the insurrection happened and all of that, they kind of definitely was like, okay, no, we're not doing that. And they planned what they did. So they cut the dress to cocktail. And I had to make another coat in like two days. 
How long does it take you to make your outfits, though? Because, I mean, you're not just going in your, in your you know, warehouse pulling down stuff for Kamala and Michelle. You're making these, right? Yeah. I, I had to make the pattern on Friday. He started sewing it on Saturday and Sunday. We flew it to D.C. on Monday. And what, how you how do you fly it? Are you one of them people that I see putting stuff up? You you looking for the flight attendants to hang your stuff up, or do you, do you bubble yeah. wrap it? What you? Do? I'm, I'm I'm that person. You are that. that like is, no, I, this this is not going up. That you got to hang this. All right. I, just, yeah, I was like, I'm sitting in first class. I need this home. Talk about your experience of working with them. I mean, is it pressure packed when you're working with? Michelle, when you're working with Kamala, when you're working with Beyonce, you've worked with Tracy Ellis Ross, I read. Like, is that, what's the pressure like involved in that? Now, I mean, you've already worked with the top of the line, so it may not be that pressure, but what was that pressure like always, for you? It's always still pressure because in this industry, everything is always the last minute. So it's just like the situation with the coat. Like, things changed, so we needed a new coat. And so we had to make the coat. And... You know, things like that happen quite often. So it's always something like that. I will say with Mrs. Obama's team, it's always very well planned out and it's never really a rush. And I mean, I, I can only imagine, but I, I will tell you that that Oxblood, for lack of a better term, burgundy outfit that she had. I, and I hope uh, what we'll do is we'll have Kaya, who's my producer, we'll have her go find this. I think I think she can find it. Uh, when she got out the car, Jake Tapper was was the host at the time. And Jake Tapper said, oh, my, there is Michelle Obama. And then Barack got out. He didn't even, he didn't even see Barack. And we're seeing more people get Another out of the Another VIP uh, pulling up to the Capitol. It is Michelle Obama, the former first lady of the United States. Michelle Obama wearing a mask. How you doing? Spotting celebrities and VIPs and politicians a little bit more challenging in the age of COVID. Uh, there's uh, President Obama as well. Uh, he, he didn't even acknowledge. <laughs> he didn't even acknowledge him. It was so funny. I was like, Jake, they go to president right there. You didn't even see him. So let me ask you this: When you're developing a look, if I'm if I'm like, look, uh, you know, I had a big event last year. Hopefully, I have another one. I went to Tyler Perry's house with my wife. If I'm like, you know, Sergio, you may not be working with me, but Sergio. I need you to develop a look for Ellen to go to Tyler Perry's house and everybody's going to be there from Beyonce to Bill and Hillary Clinton. What's your creative process like in developing these looks or L-E-W-K's looks? <laughs> um, it's, I approach everything in the same way. You know, it's an initial consultation to see if we match because I don't match with everybody. My idea of what fashion is might not be your idea of what fashion oh, wow. is or what you want to look like for that moment. And I'm very um, selective of the opportunities that I take just because I don't want to make something just for money and it ruined my reputation as a designer. So that's something that's very important to me as a Black designer, keeping my quality to a certain point. You know, growing up in South Carolina, my mom always taught me you have to be better, you have to be greater, you have to be yeah, that's true. more. So I take that into everything that I do. So I'm very, and I'm, I anger a lot of stylists because they send me a sketch and I'm like, I don't make other people's sketches. I don't make other people's ideas. I'm a designer and I need to be respected as such. And, but it's very- Oh, wow. So you don't, so you don't, so what's your, I mean, that's, I read a little bit that I, and I, I actually reached out to some of my, we'll, we'll talk offline about this, but I think that you are, 
growing in a way that you want to have your own brand stand on your own two feet. Talk about that. I, I can't remember what interview I was reading recently, like today, um, in preparation for this, but you you don't necessarily want to be associated with anybody. You want to stand on your own two feet, which is not a condemnation on anybody, but more of a belief in yourself. Yeah, if um I this is the thing. I grew up with a mother who is like when I was younger, she was almost like a Black Panther. <laughs> of course, you know, she found the Lord and she translated <laughs> that into, you know, being into church and stuff. But um, so I've always been the type of person that looked out for my community and my people. And my goal as a black man and as a designer is this is my field that I'm in. It's a lot of black people that want to be in this field, but don't see a way to be in it because it's so difficult. So my goal with this brand is to make it easier for us to enter. And I feel like in order for that to happen, you have to have an African-American designer come to the ranks of a legacy house, which would be like a Ralph Lauren or a Michael Kors, something like that. If you if you don't have that, it's no... It's, do, we, it was, do we have any of those? No, we don't. I mean, you have... You have Olivier at Balmain, but he's French. He's black, but he doesn't own Balmain. He's a higher hand, so when his contract is up, they can fire him. So he's black. Oh, you're speaking, he's a, you're speaking a whole other language, but I like the I like I like the words that are coming out your mouth right there. So how do you get to where you want to go? What's next? I mean, how, talk to me about the steps that's going to take for Sergio because we're going to all pray for you, but I manifest. But I got to know what I'm asking for. So what do we need to be asking for to get you to uh-huh. be that 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 house? Sales. <laughs> you know, I mean, at the end of the day, it's simple. We have to sell. We have to, you know, people have to want us. They have to want us as much. They want. They have to want that belt, that Michelle wore, just as much as they want the Gucci belt. Yeah. They have to. They have to. And I think it starts with our people. We have to. Support each other. You know, support each other. And I'm not saying it's not a condemnation on designer clothes because. You know, I buy my mom designer shoes all the time. So I'm not saying that. But what I'm saying is we have to spread the love. When I see, you know, people telling me they can't afford my clothes, but you got a $6,000 Chanel purse on your arm. I find issue with that, especially when you look like me. And you know, I have the crazy all- thing is that that's what I run into that practice in law because people come in and, you know, I charge them a fee for their criminal case. And they like, nah, I charge them $10,000. And they're like, nah, I can't pay that. But then the white boy come in and charge them $10,000. they like, you're going to be good. It's like his his ice is colder than my ice. Exactly. And we have to work on that in our own community, especially with our buying power. We definitely do. And, you know, it's, it's a tough barrier to break through in the industry, to be honest with you. Most of my clientele is white. People that buy my clothing, buy my stuff. And... You know, I'm hoping to change that. I want to sell to my people. I want to see my people clamoring to buy my stuff. And I feel like in the industry, a lot of times we get pigeonholed as one type of designer. And it's just the same thing that happens to us in every sector. I feel like Black people get pigeonholed. They act like we're monolithic and we only do things one type of way. And I think what my struggle is to let people know that, yes, Michael Kors makes clothes like this. Yes, Ralph Lauren makes clothes like this, but so does Sergio Hudson. This is your option. Oh, wow. And that's powerful right there. So it's like, you know, I want to be bigger. I want to be greater than, you know, Michael Kors or Ralph Lauren. I mean, I feel like we need that 
to be a beacon to the young creatives coming up. I mean, you're talking about that diversity in your industry. I'm not in your industry, so I'm learning a lot today. And I, I actually read The Chiffon Trenches by Andre Leon Talley. I mean, talk about the influence of race. Because, I mean, you're, you're dealing with, you're not just dealing with designers in New York. I mean, you're dealing with houses all over the world. Talk about the, the conflict of race in the industry that you've chosen. I think, um, and I'm not a politician or po- into um, politics um, that deep, but I think in fashion for a long time, people aren't racist, but they are white supremacists. And when I say that, they believe that white people are better than black people. They like us and they can be around us and they don't really look down, you know, whatever. But it's like, I'm white, so I got to be right type thing. And they feel like their product is better is what you're saying. Yeah. So it's like, and that's what we, a lot of black people in the industry for so long, that's what they believe. If you got let in the door, you had to close it behind you and don't Mm. let no black people in because it can only be one of us at a time in this room. And yeah. To that, to that point, one of my last questions, I'm going to ask you about two more questions and get you out of here because I know you are one of the most, Gail King looking for you, by the way. She's trying to figure out how to get you on CBS. So, uh, let, uh, just let me know. I, I I get you over there to Gail too. So we go we okay. go get you some sales. How do we cultivate more Sergios in places like Columbia or Ridgeway or Winsboro or Denmark? How do we allow young people to be able to dream like you did? I think it goes back to what I said. They have to see it happen. Like I, when I was growing up, the people I looked up to were Azadine Alaya, a Middle Eastern man. Um, Johnny Versace, an Italian man, Gianfranco Ferre, an Italian man, Terry Mugler, a French man, all of them were not black. Yeah. Because there was nobody to look up to. You know, you had Patrick Kelly, but he died. So it was like, who yeah. else is there to look to? It's nobody. If you've never seen, it's just like what Kamala said when she did her speech at the um, DNC. It's like, now that she has done it, she won't be the last. That's right. But you couldn't see it before she did it. it so it's kind of it's kind of the same thing. Not trying to equate fashion to no. Fashion. I mean, it makes sense. I always, I mean, but it makes sense because I always tell people you can't expect a young black kid to be a black doctor if he's never seen one, or a black lawyer if he's never seen one, or a black fashion designer if he's never seen one. Who do you want to design it? I mean, who do you want to style that you haven't styled now? And what's next for Sergio Hudson other than styling me? Because I, I know I, I I'm going to get you to do some of my stuff. I'm going to be the flyest person on CNN. Let, don't let me win no NAACP Image Award. I am calling you, paying you whatever. Uh, <laughs> no, I um, it's not a person. I feel like the next step is like an Academy Awards moment. And that's what I'm really looking for. This next step for me is to dress like an A-list actress for the Academy Awards. We did the image this year with Issa Rae, but it was kind of shut down. So it wasn't really a red carpet moment because they didn't have a red carpet. But um, I feel like that's the next step. Man, look, I got your back, man. I'm going to holler at all my homies. I'm Carrie Washington. Uh, who else we got out there? You Do you do you dress men? I don't. <laughs> <laughs> man, what, but you're going to make an exception, right? You're going to make an exception for me, right? We'll make an exception. All right, that's My what it is. You're going to make clothing, and I can design them. I just don't. 
You just don't. All right, man, brother, man. It's been a pleasure having you on. I know you're one of the most in-demand people um, from one South Carolinian to another. Charlamagne the God told me to tell you what's happening. I told him I was interviewing you today. He said the Breakfast Club want to talk to you too. So you're going all over the place, man. You're like a rocket, man. If there's absolutely anything I can do to be of any assistance, please, 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 please let me know. And I'm going online to buy my wife some stuff right now. Okay, please do. <laughs> hey, I went to your website yesterday. Some of the pages, they it was it was freezing. People were just crashing it. Yeah, it crashed a few times yesterday. <laughs> we got to get that thing right. I'm going to have to cash app you on the side or something, man. Shout out to Sergio Hudson. Shout out to your mama for making such a dope individual. Shout out to everybody in Winsboro Ridgeway for dreaming big, knowing they can be anything at Fairfield Central High School. My brother, I love you. I'm proud of you. I'm glad we were able to wrap. If there's ever anything Bakari Sellers or this show can do for you, you got it, all right? Thank you so much. All right, be blessed. Thank you, man. I'm in a very, very happy yet tired mood. So you know what we do at the end. We sing, before I let go. So before I let you go, I'd be remiss if I didn't uh, book in the intro with a formal goodbye to former President Donald Trump. A marching band did their goodbye to Donald Trump outside the White House better than I could. Here's the clip. If that sounds familiar, it's the song Hit the Road, Jack. I don't know if the video was doctored or not, but it was funny as hell and on Twitter, and it summed up how many of us feel about the end of the Trump presidency. We're all happy that he's gone, but Trumpism isn't gone. And when we finish our champagne tonight, tomorrow we work. Because yesterday also marked the first day of Trumpism post-Trump. I hope we're all up to the fight and we keep that same energy that we had when he got banned from every social media outlet when we're ready to impeach him and as we lock up the folks who stormed the Capitol in that failed Cracker Barrel coup. I hope my friends in the press stop covering him. I hope we keep giving Ted Cruz and Josh Hawley all the smoke. The unity talk and the healing talk comes after accountability. So goodbye, Donald. Say hello to Tish James for me and hopefully a courtroom really soon because you've worn us all out. And I hope the next time we see you, we're holding you accountable. And that's that on that. We'll see you on Monday with another episode. Y'all get some rest, drink some uh, water, Gatorade, Pedialyte, sober up. Let's get to work. Okay.